Welcome to Sunday. Get your coffee, get your latte, have a bagel, relax, put your put your AirPods in, your Google Pixel Buds, your Air Max Pro Plus over the ear, whatever jams, whatever you're into, and relax. You're into. And enjoy VC Sunday School. We're going to talk about raising a fund in public. 506C is our topic today. Yep. If you are a fund manager, a brand new VC, under- trying to understand how the LP relationship works, if you're uh, a potential LP, this is a super interesting conversation. And, of course, uh, it's Sunday, so it's This Week in Climate Startups. Uh, Molly is going to interview the founder and chief scientist of Brilliant Planet. What do they do, Molly? Give people a Yeah, this is so interesting. This is a company that is figuring out how to grow algae. In ponds, they use seawater to create the perfect conditions for big algae blooms, not the dangerous kind, but big algae blooms, which are evidently massively more efficient at sequestering mm-hmm. carbon than trees. Mm-hmm. So it sequesters carbon, they dry out the algae, they bury it and sequester all this carbon. Gigatons, by the way, they're literally talking about two gigatons of carbon, which is a massive scale. Once they get there, they've raised $25 million, and they're going to make money by turning all of that into high-quality carbon offsets and selling it on the open market. And in between the two segments, we have a big conversation about ESG and... Like you do. Climate denial. It's it's like a little 20-minute detour, but you're going to love it. It's going to be a great show! It is. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by OpenPhone. As a startup founder, a lot of mistakes are easy to roll back, but using your personal cell phone number as your company number isn't one of them. Open Phone makes it easy to get business phone numbers for you and your team, right on top of your existing devices. Visit openphone.com slash twist to get 20% off your first six months. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. And Masterclass. Learn from the world's best minds. Anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Get 15% off an annual membership to Masterclass at masterclass.com slash startups. Rise and grind. It's Sunday. It's time to (laughs) learn. And one of the things that you're going to get to learn about is we're raising our fourth fund at launch. And I can say that because we're doing a public raise as opposed to a uh, private raise. So I guess that was your question for this week was... Yeah, pretty much because when funds talk about funds, it is super secrety. And this was something that I always wondered about as a journalist, which is like, why can't you tell me how much money you raised or who you raised from? Right. Nobody talks about their LPs. Nobody talks about how much they raise. You are not allowed to say that you're going to raise. And evidently now. And we've talked about this, of course, on uh, ask on the angel podcast with first time fund managers and the different ways you can raise this 506b and 506c. But I thought it would be really useful, especially since we're about to start doing it to talk about how this all works and why it was so secrety before. So the whole time I was a journalist as well, you know, I had at some point Fred Wilson and Jerry Colonna, I was interviewing them like, Oh, and I was like, Oh, I hear you're raising from like, "Ah," to turn the microphone off. They would like really panic, like we can't talk about that. Because if we do, then you have to certify that everybody in your fund is in fact a qualified purchaser or an accredited investor. So this is this general solicitation rule. 
It's um, Regulation D of Section 4 of the Securities Act. Now, if you're doing a fund or whatever, don't take my advice here. I'm just going to talk about it in general terms. You have to have a lawyer. You have to do this stuff right. But basically, there's two designations, 506B, 506C. And if you mm -hmm. Google this, you'll find tons of documents. When you do a 506B, you can raise an unlimited amount from up to 2,000 qualified purchasers. Qualified purchasers are people with a high net worth, millions of dollars. Uh, but you cannot raise in public, you can't mention or tweet about your raise. Um, and the reason for this is to protect uh, people from uh, making investments in risky vehicles, like we've talked about, like crypto and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, people can self certify that they are what they say they are an accredited investor, etc. Mm -hmm. that, that's my basic understanding of why they created the why behind this. Well, that leaves the 506 C, which is general solicitation. This means you can raise in public, you can tweet about it. Um, now you can't tweet about your performance or future looking things. There's still other rules. And you can still have an unlimited amount of these qualified purchasers. And you can raise up to 10 million from 250 accredited investors. You might want to keep that to 230 in case people change the names of their entities, which happens sometimes they have like a family trust or an individual or a divorce happens or they transfer the ownership. Anyway, long story short, I decided after seeing so many people uh, doing public raises mm -hmm. that I would for launch fund four, uh, instead of having to ask people to, hey, you know, my friends who have funds, can you introduce me to some of your LPs? I'll just say it here on the pod, we're raising launch fund four. Right. And if anybody would like to come to a meeting about that, just email me and uh, I'll get you invited to a presentation where I talk about our fund and our plans for launch fund four, and maybe what the results of the first 10 years of my angel in uh, first 10 years of my fund investments have done. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so let me break this down a little bit more. So 506B previously, this is the super secret one. And in this, in that case, you could not raise in public, you could not mention it, you could not tweet about it. And you could only raise from qualified purchasers and is accredited that right? investors, but they would self certify. Um, yeah. And then, which means and then they what's say, the I'm difference between investor. a qualified purchaser is like a higher income? Yeah. Level qualified purchasers are like I think it's five million. Five million, yeah, five million in investable assets. The notice took us up, and right. then okay, so five hundred six C general solicitation that was in was that introduced with that big kind of uh, set of Obama no, I think era it's always rule changes. Existed. Yeah, I think it's always existed. The mm. number of people you can have in the funds has changed around a little bit, but the key thing here is they have to send you a note uh, or go through a service that says I am in fact a qualified purchaser. I am mm -hmm. in fact an accredited investor. You can't just take their word for it. Got so it. it does create a little extra work for everybody. Okay. But the benefit you get, I think is huge, uh, which is I can publicly talk that hey, we're raising lunch on four. Somebody right. listens to this podcast, they listen to all in they follow me on Twitter. Now they know I'm doing this. Right. And they can say, Hey, you know what, I, I would like to be in your fund. Uh, I would like to go on that adventure with you. Can I come here about your vision for launch fund four? And so you know, there are some it pitfalls takes, here, of yeah. course. Could do that because I was going to say it seems like everybody would just do this, but there must be some reasons why you wouldn't want to, other than the certification process, which is probably pretty onerous. Somewhat, it's I, I don't think it's super onerous, but it is you know the, the people who something. operate the fund, you know, people who work for our company who have to do this. Now they have to have three, four, five hundred people certify. So yeah, if that mm -hmm. takes an extra an hour each, it could create four hundred hours of work. It seems like a lot for a venture fund you know, worth 50 million, 100 million, 200 million dollars, you know, who cares? That, right. That's a that's a cost of doing business in my mind. But yeah, there might be like many things in life, 
you know, it might be a lot of work, but not for me <laughs> and, you know, for operations people. And so that's always one of my favorite uh -huh. lines. People are like, that's going to be a lot of work. And I always go, not for me, is that what <laughs> which, do, you do know, you want is, that to be your favorite line. <laughs> oh, I love it. I think it's hilarious. It's a great like, dad yeah, joke. Awesome. That's like a dad CEO <laughs> joke. Um, but, you know, if you are, uh, you know, a chef at a restaurant and you're like, I would like to have each of the potatoes cut a certain way and, and be a certain yeah. exact size. Um, and people are like, well, that's a lot of work. And I'm like, yeah, not for me. And that's going to make the plate look really good that they're all symmetrical. You know, that, right. that's maybe and why more people going. are going to come here and we're all going to get paid more to be clear. Exactly. Like there's there a reason go. we're not just being there's yeah. a reason to do it. Yes. yes. And so the reason for me is I would like to meet more LPs more efficiently. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, I really want to meet certain categories of LPs like people I think are doing great things in the world. Like I would love to have them, you know, um, an endowment working on cancer research or something like that. Both my parents are cancer survivors. So I, I want to be able to do meaningful work for LPs, you know, yeah. if we're going to triple or quadruple, hopefully, you know, hopefully we get some good return. I can't promise anything, obviously, you, you do the best you can. But if you're going to put all that work in with that goal, you would like it to be for people who are going to put it to good use, not just to buy another Ferrari or, you know, a fifth home. So yeah, not that I mind, you know, I don't have a problem with Ferraris or fifth homes. Uh, so the, the, the door is open to all. <laughs> well, the doors open to all to hear the pitch and meet us if they're an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser. Now, you really don't want a bunch of randos in business with you because they could cause downstream problems. So mm -hmm. you'll have people who are like, maybe it's their first venture fund. And so I try to be very open about these things. That's the whole point of the syndicate. Hey, you know, if you don't know angel investing, there's this book, Angel, and we do a course, Angel University. So I like to educate people and teach them as much as we've learned. And I, I'm very open to new people being involved in stuff we do. A lot of other people are like, I don't want new LPs. I'm on my seventh fund. I'm benchmark. I'm benchmark famously had the same LPs for every fund since the second, I think, and they only had one mm. person rotate out during a down market, that person didn't uh, pony up for the down market fund, and they didn't invite them back for the five subsequent funds, like really disastrous, oh. uh, famous story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so when you get going and you have the big LPs, you know, and they're putting in 50 or 25 million or 10 million or 100 million, your fund kind of gets filled up, you built the relationship with Yale or Harvard or Moral Sloan Kettering or whatever college or institution is for a foundation, they just have earmarked 10% of their endowment for venture, and you're part of their 10%. And so right. they just kind of go along with you. All right, everybody on the phone today is Open Phones founder Darina Kulia. Welcome to the program, Darina. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. What about the situation where you have, you know, a phone number that's a common number? So customer support number, or maybe you wanted people to just be able to call you and generally talk to the sales team. How do you handle that when you have a, a group number, a shared number? That's actually one of the super unique things about the way we've built Open Phone is that we allow you to uh, to have a shared number for your team. First of all, when you call into that shared number, you can set round robin if, if that's applicable or by default, everyone's phone would ring. The first person to pick it up will be able to have a Ooh, call. I like that for customer support. Wow. Exactly, exactly. And also if if I am on a call with a customer, I don't want to be uh, interrupted. There are other people who can, who can pick up new calls coming in. But I also really think what's very cool is that this workflow works as well for text messages. And not only can you just like share responsibility for responding to text but you can also use this as a training exercise because the way that it works is that if i am a customer support rep 
There is a text message from a customer. I don't know how to answer. I can actually tag my teammates privately on that conversation and uh, get help and say, hey, is this okay to say or how would you respond? Okay, everybody, Twist listeners can get 20% off any plan for their first six months at Open Phone. Just go to openphone.com slash twist. If you got an existing number, they'll put it right over for free. Head to openphone.com slash twist today for 20% off. A lot of people don't want to deal with ever meeting new LPs. And so when, you know, these top funds, it's like, most people can't get into them. The mm -hmm. idea that you could get into Sequoia's fund or a benchmark fund, like, yeah, maybe 15 years ago, you could have, but you can't now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, our because first it's a relationship was, too, right? For people who don't understand, like your LPs are your bosses, that's your board. They are your partners. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if it's a big check, and they're 20% of your fund, yeah, it could feel more like they're your bosses, I suppose, if, especially if you have a giant LP, like 50%. That's why the advice I got from a lot of my mentors was nobody should have more than 10% of your fund. Oh, uh, no more than 5%. So if mm -hmm. you have a $100 million fund, the biggest check you should take is five or 10. I think that's not very practical. But you know, ideally, then you've got this um, diversification. So if anyone or two people don't come in, you don't have to replace a $25 million check yet or replace a $5 million check a little bit easier to do. Right? In my case, it might wind up with too many investors, we already have too many accredited investors. So we can have 2000 of those qualified only have 250 of the credits we're going to fill that up pretty quickly instantly in fact mm -hmm. so we'll probably like last time have to have a bit of a lottery for you know people put their request in you know they put in a 50k check or a 100k check we'll come up with some size and that 10 million will fill up real quick but you see a lot of people mac I, were you on the call with mac when we interviewed him no i listened to it though okay oh, listen to it yeah, yeah. so mac met me and I think I'm an LP and max fund, I, I, I LP maybe three or four of these funds, and I just put in 10 or 25k checks, just to be supportive and build relationships with people who are public raising, I would not have known about it. Right? I mean, right. I do get people emailing me, do, please don't email me. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I do like one new fund a year. Uh, and I got like, I I got like two of those for you if you want. <laughs> no more, please. I, I got to put it into our fund, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be on the mm -hmm. hook for putting a lot of money into our funds. So mm. I have a question about that too. I'm yeah. sneaking a bonus question. They Somebody uh, emailed the other day and asked me a question about, or I was talking to a friend or something and said like, what, who said, what is your capital requirement for working as a VC? And I was like, uh, what are you, what are you talking about? You're but not it, a partner yet. You're a managing director. When but when you you're a partner, partner, like you're expected to be the standard would be your own fund. Yes. So they want to see skin in the game. Mm -hmm. They're realistic about it. So, you know, a Sequoia fund, you know, Doug Leone, Michael Moritz, like, maybe they're expected to put millions of dollars So, it's a $300 million fund, they might expect the and let's say there were five partners in that fund, they might expect those five partners to put in $2 million each $10 million. Mm -hmm. So that's only, you know, if it's 10 million on 200, it's 5% of 10 million on 400. It's only two and a half percent. But it's a big number. It's a lot of cash to come up with, you know, it's, 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 it's not de minimis. And then you're doing it every three years. So you got to come up with more money. With a new fund, you know, like these $10 million micro funds, you know, $20 million funds, they might only expect, they might expect nothing if it's a first time fund manager. And then over time, they might expect more. And so in our funds, I was typically in the $10 million funds, I think I was two or 3%. I, I'm trying to remember, like, so I put two or $300,000 of my own money. And so I think for, you know, me as a solo GP, general partner mm -hmm. with a bunch of MDs and, and folks around me, Maybe 1% is what people would expect me to put in. 
if it was five partners, and eventually it will be, they would expect each person to put in 1%, maybe, or a half right. a percent. And they they would have some flexibility. You know, if you're Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, and then you hire somebody who's a billionaire, those three might put $2 million each into the fund. And then you got three other partners who are up and coming, they might say 250 each. Mm -hmm. but just some skin in the game to feel good about it. Nick is pointing out in our chat that apparently Tiger Global Partners committed a billion dollars of their own cash to invest mm -hmm. in seed funds that focus on backing the youngest startups from March of this year. Interesting. the Tiger Global Partners, one billion of their own cash, I wonder how much the whole fund would have been then. It says Tiger Global Partners famously put in almost their entire billion dollar fund. Like Oh, they put it in their they entire almost, billion. They did it, it almost like that. a family office. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and that's, I think that's what Chamath does. He's got like a family office kind of approach right, right now. And if you watch Billions, you can see uh, acts go from wanting to have other people's money to having his own and vacillating back and forth. So just some skin in the game is, I think, what people are looking for. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for me, I'm really interested to see how it goes. You could get, you know, people who are hard to work with, like any other partners. Uh, the good news is right. if they have only a small amount in the fund, you know, you cannot invite them back to the next one. Basically. Is it hard to get there are certain things that you have to get LP consent on, right? So I would I could imagine that could also be a thing if you have lots and lots of LPs as a result yes. of something like this. You you generally set those things up in advance and it's a three year fund. So right. if you were going to make any kind of change, like I, I don't think I've made any changes to our, our fund structure. Mm -hmm. And so I would just wait to the next fund and do a different structure, right? Got it. So yeah, you're better off just waiting because going and collecting a bunch of signatures and explaining it to people would be kind of hard. I do think sometimes people will like I think we talked about recycling like hey, the first 10% back first million dollars back we can recycle. I think I had one fund that I was in said to me, hey, we want to uh, we didn't add recycling We want to add recycling because we think it's in our best interest and all the LPs best interest. So yeah, of course, go ahead and do that. Right, right. Because they didn't know about recycling. That, that's why VC Sunday School exists. So that fund managers and investors can learn together. Here Absolutely. We are. And we're all learning. You know? Also, we're apparently, learning. we're raising a fund, everybody. Apparently. Launch fund forecoming. Yeah. Very and I'll, exciting. I'll uh, you know, everybody knows my email address, jason at calacanis.com. You know my DM. And, uh, well, there'll be some formal announcement about it as well. And I'll pin it to my Twitter, like, hey, the next three weeks. I like this. It's a relief. I don't like three, not talking about stuff. <laughs> I'm going to basically do, like, three webinars mm -hmm. where I'll just get on a Zoom and people can go and, you know, then they can submit questions and ask questions. And I'll just talk for 45 minutes or an hour about what our plans are, you'll get to listen in on those. And then I, you know, I may want to go on the road and meet a couple people. Because um, I, you know, I, I did meet with some of the top endowments over the first three funds, but the, the funds were smaller. Mm -hmm. So there really wasn't room, you know, they, their minimum check size was 50. And the last fund was 44 million. <laughs> the two right. funds before that were 10 and 11, uh, with a little recycling. So you know, this one will go for a little bit bigger, I think. And we'll see how it goes, you know, and uh, I'm going to be raising during a down market, I fully expect, you know, I'll, I'll fill up, you know, all the small checks or the medium sized checks, but it might take six months, perhaps even a year in this kind of a market for me to get the uh, to, to round up the bigger checks, but I'm okay with that. I think my understanding is fund managers used to take a full year to two years to raise a fund. So they would start raising the fund, start investing, people would look at the performance of the first six months of investments. And then that would incent more people to come in because they get a little more insight into how you're doing as a fund. So but the fund does need to close, there's, you know, a reasonable window. And I think the reasonable window is one year. So I'll be kicking that off in September, uh, like, uh, and then so going tomorrow for a year, and I'm gonna have to go get on planes and go meet people and shake hands in all kinds of cities, uh, and maybe even internationally and say, Hey, here's what we're doing. 
you want to put a chip in and be partners with us. And I'm kind of excited to do it because I never sell. I never go out and Masa. sell. It's you know, okay. I never I take it's... credit for what I do. I'm I'm not out yeah. there selling. And this I'm excited to go out and see and pitch people and say, hey, here's what I'm doing. Like, is this exciting to you? Would you like to, you know, put five or 10 or $25 million into this fund? I'm kind of excited about it. Yep. I love it. And raising in public, I'm sorry, is just on brand. It's just more on brand for you. It's the way to I go. I think it should be better. Hoping for the best. Listen, if you're a founder or an employee of a startup, it's critical that you become capital efficient at a time like this. Fundraising, really hard. And your burn rate, hey, that might make you unfundable and you want to make that runway last as long as possible. Well, one great way to do that is to cut the cost of running all of these disparate SaaS applications. Why not run on one platform? And that one platform is called Odoo. Using Odoo's suite of business applications means you don't have to have a bunch of messy SaaS subscriptions everywhere that nobody's using, that are costing you all this money, you're getting charged on your credit cards every month. Nope, everything you need is already in Odoo. All you have to do is turn it on, boop, when you're ready. And they'll only charge you for the apps you use. They want to grow with you. They want to support you. They have over 40 main apps and 16,000 apps from their open source community. We're talking about all the important stuff, sales, accounting, marketing, automation, HR, website builders, and so, so much more. And this will streamline your business. No more issues transferring your data back and forth and wasting time. Now it's time for the best part. The call to action on this is amazing. The first app you use on Odoo is free forever, okay? And they're so confident, they're gonna give you a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. All you have to do is go to odoo.com slash twist, odoo.com slash twist for $1,000 off. That's odoo.com slash twist. All right. Well, that's it for BC Sunday School today. Next up, of course, this week in climate startups. This is a fascinating one. I think you're really going to love it. Raphael Jovine is the founder and chief scientist at a company called Brilliant Planet. Hmm. And Brilliant Planet is using seawater to create the perfect conditions for algae blooms and it turns out that a coastal desert with a big pond with a bunch of algae in it can sequester a crap ton of carbon. That's a science word. And then they just dehydrate this algae and bury it. And then the way that and they turn that into yes. super high quality carbon credits huh. and sell those. Yeah. Trees and algae fascinating. sequester carbon dioxide naturally. Yep. And algae just, apparently is way more efficient than trees ah yeah trees like are slow massive algae amounts like yeah a fungus it's, it's like it just grows like crazy so you basically build a pond you yeah. put algae in it and then you bury the algae yep yeah makes sense and then you generate carbon credits and sell it i mean it's like printing money in a weird way it was it's kind of fascinating it was very fascinating well you know i'm feeling hopeful about the uh you know the climate stuff specifically around nuclear you know there's this um nuclear power plant here in northern california yeah that they're going to have the name of it here. It's a famous name, but Diablo Diablo. And it looks like we're going to keep that online. And then I was reading about a desalinization plant in the Bay Area that is now um, pulling water out of like that briny bay that we have that you know, the bay fills up every day from the ocean. We shouldn't be even worrying about energy and desalinization and water energy and water should be free. We should have a nuclear power plant next to desal plants. If the energy uh, if we have too much energy, do a bunch of desal. So if everybody's asleep and the and we can throw off more energy, or the solar day and the wind days are so powerful, 
we could use that, you know, extra capacity at the a nuclear power plant to desal a bunch of water and dump it into the Colorado River or get, send it to the uh, Central Valley to make almonds or whatever we're doing with all this water. So, you know, it feels like the solutions are here and we're now in this implementation phase. Yeah. And so we're that, starting that makes to me be feel positive. in a, it, what I love about where we are right now, and I am, I am hopeful for all those same reasons, is that we're also at the incontrovertible stage, right? It's just like, look, yeah. you can have one whole political party right now pretending that climate change doesn't exist. Fine. Honestly, it does not matter because banks know it exists. Investors know it exists. People. Homeowners, property owners. One the third right of has changed there, right? Hasn't like, the, the right voted no. on this climate change bill, right? They voted in support no. of it, some number. No, none. None did? Not a single Republican voted for the latest Inflation Reduction Act. A couple huh. of them, a few of them voted for the CHIPS Act, which has a lot of climate provisions, but that's Got not it. why they did it. And right I now, Texas and Florida are literally out here saying, if you're a big investment, if you're BlackRock and you're invested in ESG funds, then we, the Florida Pension Fund, will not be allowed to participate. Well, that's because of that they're ESG going harder. Other stuff. That's because of the G, I think. They're the going ESG. harder on anti-climate. They really are. And yes, it's because it's like wrapped up in social stuff and they think it's Why like woke to be. Why did they do that, me. Molly? Why did they put environment with the social stuff? It it seems like unnecessary to... It's, uh, it's, a, it's a little it's bit legacy. I wish I could. If this is going to be my least popular TED Talk ever is that we do probably need to figure out how to separate the E from the S and the G. Like we really do because we are not going to solve racism before we have to address climate because the time to address climate is actually 100 years ago, but we should start today. And so we do have this like we have a situation where equity is becoming a blocker for some yes. environmental forward momentum and it is giving Republicans an excuse to be against climate change, which yes. is extinction level behavior. Right. And so it, it just it it like it's and frankly, it just makes it all the more reason that you could never vote for one. Like, it's just like, look, if you want us all to die and that's your party position, that's a loser. Yeah. The Republicans are living in states where they're being impacted by climate. So they're changing their position, Jackson, especially when they start no water. Yeah, but, and they're also like, hey, I need funds to fix these problems. Right. So they can't anymore. It's not sustainable to be anti-climate, pro-business, and not having to put... Because they're, they're seeing the cost of it, like you're saying. The cost is apparent. And so when you see the heat waves... And, and the you danger see the grids is coming down. Yeah. And they want to... They, they want to get that <laughs> government money. So if mm -hmm. they say that climate isn't... You know, climate... Change is, is not real. Isn't real. Right then how can they get the money to fix the climate stuff? Right. They'll be saying that they're on like an, and you know, it's a disaster. It's disaster funding over and over. But what they're letting happen is the disasters that are killing people. Yeah, why not prevent the disaster? Why not? Right. Pre right exactly. Anyway, I think they're, like, I think the, they're getting there. And I think the interesting thing is like, it's a good lesson. And they're going to have to get there, but they're going to get dragged there. What they, what they need now is an out, right? Like they right. need an off ramp to this Yes. totally Great point. unsustainable extinction level position that climate change is not real and it's not happening. But you're seeing that rhetoric only increase from the GOP yeah. right now. There's a clear, I think there's a clear um, middle ground here, which is, oh yeah, um, the left and the environmentalists are like, we get that nuclear isn't ideal compared to renewables, but we'll put that in the mix. A lot mm -hmm. more people have accepted nuclear. Mm -hmm. So I feel like nuclear could be the common ground where the two sides could be like, you know what? We can't be, you know, fighting with Putin and the Middle East and, you know, OPEC. 
So even people on the left I'm hearing are like, yeah, a little bit of natural gas as a bridge to get a nuclear to get us to sustainability. Right. I'm okay with which right. obviously I'm okay with like, yeah, sure, burn a little bit extra. Now, if we're investing in nuclear, if we're investing in all these other sustainable things, I'm okay with a little bit, you know, if it's clean, you know, I mean, listen, I'm all I'm saying is we're always moving. They're never moving. So like, at some point, I think they've moved a little bit. I think they have moved zero. They have moved in the other direction. Like I'm serious. I am serious yeah. when I say that the the rhetoric about climate change has only gotten worse from the GOP. In fact, there That's was a big of the article ESG. about how like 10 years ago, it does, piece you know what? Blocker. It doesn't matter. Find your own off ramp. It's not my job to figure like, right. Like you can say, <laughs> well, okay, you, if they're going to sit there and say it's because of the to... ESG, but not fund anything to save people's lives from climate change. Like I know they're I'm crazy sometimes, but I look at my crazy uncles as like, I need to like, sorry, just, Nick, you know, I said I would swear less. I, I look at the crazy uncles who are like, it's not doesn't exist. And I'm like, come on, you know, it exists. So let's just get over there. Well, I don't want to have to, you know, have a woman on the board of my company. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. You, you know, I get it. I get it. You yeah, don't want I'm, the ladies in the board. I don't want to have those conversations anymore. I do not know how well, we got I, it. I, I did the, I was talking nuclear and then it, uh, she brought up the ESG thing and I, I wanted to know I Molly's talking, position on ESG. I was talking algae. <laughs> I heard ESG algae. I heard ES algae. That's what they're stuck on is like, don't tell me how to run my company and don't give me goals for diversity. Like, you know, Slootman said like, listen, we want to be diverse, but we need to grow the business first and foremost. So we're just going to hire the best people as quick as we can. We don't, we're not slowing down to make the numbers look better. He was and just that's how super nothing ever changes. Great. Great. Well, yes. And you know, it's like that group of people, you're going to have to like give them. Yeah. I, I just, what else could they, why would you attach governance and, you know, sustainability and environment, they sound like two sides of the same coin. Maybe they should be together. Are they the same thing? Yeah, they're the same. That's the, the same, same thing. thing. Mm -hmm. So the ES is the same. The S stands the for social. The S does oh, not stand for sustainable. Social. Yeah, oh. it's environmental, social, and governance. And, and okay. because it's for because for a long time, like there was That's no was division confused. in any company or any investment firm related yes. to you environmental take the social and the issues and the environment and just make it three different things. <laughs> e comma E period mm -hmm. S period. G period, everybody can fight over those things separately. Like, what are we going to do? Put religion in there too? E S R G, you know, like, we're never okay. going to get anything done. I see that you're, uh, I see that you're practicing for all in later. <laughs> I mean, it is part of it. You know, I do have to like, you do have to convince some people. We're actually highly sympathetic to diversity, but we just don't want to override merit. Oh, my God. If I start doing I that, I start this. compromising the company's mission, literally. I could see people interpreting that either way. No, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Because it really does sound like what you're saying is, uh, I am assuming that women and people of color are not as skilled, right? Like, that would be the most cynical. Sometimes you have to work harder to find people who have equal merit. Well, here's his follow up. We need to come to a more moderate, real place. There's really no room for the hysteria and the outrage. We're CEOs, we run companies, we have to produce results for our employees and our partners and our investors and our customers. We can't get distracted in that mission. When you do, 
you might as well hang it up and let somebody else do it. I, love, <laughs> so actually, I, love, I think he kind of doubled down on it. Yeah, he, I thought that was going in a certain yeah, direction. Now I'm swearing again. He doubled down. Yeah, he give lists down. in the notes. He's <laughs> he like, did that down. say override merit? He's like, I'm not going to be hiring all these dumb women just to look no, better. You know what? It, it, it has to do with. It's not well put. Let me put it's it not that well way. put. And the, right. the more subtle point is, I think we're there might be, be specific positions or jobs where finding whatever kind of diversity you're looking for, uh, gender, race, geographic, there just might not be as many candidates back to the pipeline problem. So if you were to look at graduate schools right now, majority of graduate schools, it's majority female. So to get a, a male version of some degree is just much harder. So you might have it go reverse to what people expect. Um, you know? okay. I mean, look, women are 50% of the population. They're not 50% right? of developers. Like if you look at, I know, problem. but what I'm saying is I don't have any patience for somebody being like, it, it has to, I'd have to hire somebody less qualified or it's overriding my, do the work, like do the work. I know, but what about the issue of pipeline? I mean, I, I that, this, I don't know why this is controversial. What he's saying people. is I don't want to find him and train him. And I think what we're going to see okay, increasingly yeah. is that companies are actually going to become the Votex. Like companies are going to be upskilling people. And so he's oh, yeah. just like, I don't have any there, patience well, for that. I talked about this for that. on the blueprint. Grow with Google. Have you seen this, Molly? No. Google awesome. obviously cares a lot about uh, diversity, inclusion, and all the social stuff. Mm -hmm. They have five free courses and they're like, I'm guaranteeing you those five courses probably have some gender race uh, challenges in terms of pipeline and they made free courses to I'm, I'm going to assume uh, increase the number of candidates, but also increase the candidates to create more diversity. So right. you can do that. I think that's like, you if you're do doing that. that, you can do skills matching instead of, you know, if you're just like, let's say you're filtering just by a master's degree, which a lot yeah. of developer positions do. Like, I'm not going to argue do? that there oh. aren't a lot of uh, that there aren't more male developers than than female developers. No, That's 100% a hundred percent true. Yeah. However, we also have all of these filters in place that exclude skilled candidates without certification. So certification is is what's going to probably start to go away. And you're going to say like, oh, I've got somebody who is you know is perfectly skills matched to this and this and this, but doesn't have the degree, doesn't have five years experience, yeah. and I might have to invest six months in training with them. But I'm Frank Slubin, and I don't want to. And so then it's like, oh, awesome. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. Yeah. I mean, a great way to do it, too, would be to look at, I don't know I'm, why this doesn't come up in these social discussions is, what are the percentage of graduates, uh, you know, for the last 10 years? Mm -hmm. And then what are our percentages in our company, right? So if you were to look at MBAs, and then, you know, or look at applications, right? That's actually where, like, if you look at Y Combinator, I think they did a really good job of saying, here's the applicants to Y Combinator. And then here's the acceptance. And then they started to say, like, is this problem happening when we accept people? And they mm -hmm. took ownership of it, which I thought mm -hmm. was pretty brave. Yeah. And they're like, hey, listen, <laughs> we have 20%. I'm just making a number of it. Let's say that, uh, you know, five years ago, 10% females founded companies. Now it's 20%. We're accepting 6%. Okay, where's that other 4% going? You know, is it that the male pitches were that, were that much right. better? Or right. is it that maybe the people who are evaluating the ideas are biased or yeah. has unconscious bias? Which like is you are going to have to slow down is the thing. And I say this with all due respect to General Slootman, like you do have to slow mm -hmm. down. You do have to be intentional. You do have to yeah. put in a little bit of extra work. And then you know what you get out of it? Empirically better businesses. Like you get better companies.
you have a better, you can reach more customers because you have a literal diversity of thought of people being like, actually, you know, who would buy this is this person because I'm that person. And you never yes. considered that before. Like the data really bears out that yes. that's an investment work make, worth making. And so to act like, like, oh, everything is going so great that I don't, and I'm not saying everything isn't going great for Snowflake. It obviously is. But to say like, we don't have time to do that is just like, okay, see you in the dustbin, buddy. To... See you in the dustbin. Well, it also costs very little to nothing for a company at that scale, and maybe they have it, to create a training program. And right? literally the blueprint I talked about this week was about investing and drafting and developing talent. And you do totally. professional exactly. development here. And you might have noticed that it's an awful lot of females here <laughs> uh, yeah. in that room when we do it. It's, I, I don't even know, statistically, aside from female founded firms, of male founded firms, I wonder on our investment team, is it 60% female maybe? It's 50, close, yeah, something like that. And I wonder if on male firms, what the average, you know, of more than five people, let's say, so you get to yeah. 10, 10 people or more, what is the, you know, the the average female-male ratio? That's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't it's... by design. I just hired the best people. Oh, you didn't have to override merit in order to get like naturally accidental, <laughs> totally working. So not an investing. If you're saying you're training people, which was what we're doing. Right. So we're training researchers into associates, into principals, into managing directors. It's been a right. seven year journey for me. I've got three managing directors. I got a bunch of researchers, associates and principals. And so you clear, have to be willing to do development. To be clear, Nodi is we're not spending we're not hiring people. This is not an expensive that we are training each other. Like, it, this isn't some huge monetary investment that you're making in training, well, you know? I mean, the what you could do, and I've had people suggest this, mm -hmm. um, is instead of having 10 people with the majority being trained up, just hire two partners and put all, or three partners and put all that money towards that. So yeah. don't have 10 people, have three. And just pay people three times as much and just get senior people. But, I, you know, I I, through whatever circumstance, you know, these small funds, you don't have a big budget, so you kind of uh, I kind of built a support team around me that I was like, if you guys want to become VCs and go from, you know, operations people to VCs, I'll teach you. And they're like, yeah, would, that, would, would you? <laughs> I was like, sure. Hmm. Are you journalist, you want to learn investing? You know, okay. Yeah, totally. Well, why not? It doesn't seem that hard to me. And that's the other thing is I think people also overestimate how hard it is to learn something mm -hmm. and underestimate people's ability to learn something if they're motivated. Yes. And people are motivated to learn venture. I can tell you that because it's a great job. Not supposed to curse. I know. Sorry, sorry Family Nick. show. Uh, all right. Thanks, okay. everybody. All right. Let's enjoy the interview. <laughs> sorry for the deriding oh, right. little conversation. And enjoy and the interview. Enjoy the interview. Uh, eat your algae, everybody. <laughs> about algae? Don't eat it. You don't eat don't it. Don't eat you algae. Bury it. Bury <laughs> Bury your algae, everybody. Listen, Masterclass is the best way to learn from world-class instructors at the top of their fields. I love this product. We use it in our household. We've got a yearly subscription. And their amazing courses include my guy, Steph Curry, teaching shooting and ball handling, legendary and former Disney CEO, Bob Iger, teaching you about business leadership and strategy. That's a great course. I've watched it. And I recently watched Chris Voss, a former FBI lead hostage negotiator, teach the art of negotiation. Now, you may have read his book. You may have done the audio book, whatever. Those are great. I love Chris Voss. I've heard him be interviewed on podcasts. But when he sits down and does a masterclass, that is the pinnacle of him sharing information and it is so well done you're going to learn a ton each one of these looks like a movie the production value and the joy of watching these you're going to really enjoy the aesthetics while getting all of that amazing 
information. They have 11 categories with over 150 instructors now. And the lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes long, so they can fit into your busy schedule. And you can get unlimited access to every single masterclass. That's the big innovation here for 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash startups, masterclass.com slash startups for 15% off. Rafael Jovin is founder and chief scientist at Brilliant Planet. And I think it is probably safest, Rafael, if I just let you explain what you guys are building here. <laughs> okay, no worries. Thank you very much. And thank you for having us. And it's, uh, it's really exciting, actually. So what Brilliant Planet does is we grow algae really cheaply the way they grow nature. Half the planet is driven by algae in the ocean, algal photosynthesis, and it is um, what moves most of the carbon on the planet. And so what we wanted to do is, is take advantage of a lot of free resources like empty desert land, lots of sunlight. There's a lot of sunlight out there. Um, deep ocean water. There's uh, more than 50 times the nutrients that we use every year on land available in the ocean at any one point in time. And, and bring that rich ocean water together with local algae in those empty deserts, in those empty coastal deserts, and grow more biology, grow more algae, grow more biomass. And it's, it's the whole point of it was it was supposed to be additive. It was supposed to be new growth um, that wouldn't happen by itself. And the idea was if we can grow a lot of algae, they will absorb a lot of CO2. We can do that very cheaply. And then we can harvest those algae, dry them with sunlight, just the way it is in the desert, mm -hmm. and bury them to remove that carbon from the atmosphere. So the whole point of it from the very get-go at the very beginning was the first patent in was a method of carbon sequestration. And we wanted to be able to um, use what nature gives us in the way that it gives it to us to do more and increase more nature, more biomass to draw down that carbon. That's what we do. How Tell me about how efficient these algae blooms are in terms of carbon sequestration, because when you describe it, you know, all new fields of algae and using seawater and, you know, getting that into the desert and then harvesting and then drying it out. It sounds like not super efficient. So I'm assuming that it must sequester a lot of carbon to make all of that worth it. Oh, for sure. So uh, per square meter per year, we can sequester 30 times as much CO2 than a forest does. And wow. um, so it's, it is, it is, there are no leaves, there are no roots, there are no trunks, there's no, there are no branches. It's very simple uh, in terms of all of the biology goes into growing more algae that capture more carbon. And so it is a very, very fast system. What the real invention was is, is that in nature, these algal blooms happen very episodically, usually in the springtime and usually in the autumn. Mm -hmm. And what we normally witness is uh, sort of fishling their eggs and everything to coincide with those blooms. It's the base of the food chain. Mm -hmm. 
And so all we wanted to do was to take advantage of the local organisms the way they like it in those exponential growing, very rapidly growing algal blooms and make that happen in our ponds year round. The real invention is, is, is that we got to sort of perpetuate that phenomenon in our ponds all year round. And we've now done this in South Africa, in Oman. So South Africa is very cold in the wintertime. Oman is really intensely hot in the summertime mm-hmm. um, across a huge range of environments. And now we're in a more moderate place in Morocco. And we've now run this for five years in the real world, not in the lab, in actual uh, production scale. Uh, we've got the largest algal raceway pond in Morocco, uh, probably in the world. And it is, um, and, and it has shown us that we can do this, um, even through COVID when there were very stringent COVID restrictions in Morocco mm-hmm. and you couldn't go in and out. But the local team, uh, continued to grow things with what nature gives them right there. And so it's been a very good experience in the sense that um, we've seen this now work through a whole lot of different seasons, a whole lot of different environments with local challenges, of course. Um, and, and what makes us confident about this is, is, is two things. One is the, the, the algal growth process works really well. But the other thing is, is there's an enormous amount of empty desert land available. And the reason why I say that is uh, there's virtually an infinite amount of nutrients available in the ocean. Uh, obviously, there's an excess of CO2 right now in the environment. And, um, and we really genuinely believe that we can scale this to a really significant level. The other part that makes us confident is, is that we've now spent the years of trying to identify all the places where costs creep in. Mm-hmm. And we've got a collaboration, for example, with Southampton University uh, that has been um, very, very productive, where they look at our paddle wheels and how we mix the algae in our ponds and keep them in suspension. And they have reduced the cost of that paddle wheel by 90%. We've learned from shrimp farmers how to sort of pump the water once and then percolates through the system by gravity. So we don't have any pumps. We've learned from the miners how to remove the algal biomass very cheaply on these, uh, again, very passive screens that uh, are gravity fed. And so the point is um, we spent the years to try to strip out all the electricity costs and all the energy costs. And, and, you know, from a life cycle analysis point of view, make this a very, very low technology, low cost, low operational effort system. So that when we pull that carbon out, that we actually really have a net big impact. Right. And then what? Walk me again through the sort of end of life of the algae. Is it just dried and buried or is it used as any kind of a biofuel? No. Uh, Of course, we looked at biofuels. And when I started this, my mates used to come to me and say, why is it so expensive to grow biofuels? And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Uh, Every puddle, every pool turns green if you turn around. So Mm -hmm. what are we doing wrong? Algae grow for free all the time everywhere on the planet. So 
So, um, of course, we looked at biofuels, we looked at aquaculture feed, we looked at human food, we looked at high value products, just like everybody else has in the space. Right, right. But, um, but the original idea was to move a lot of carbon. And, and in the end, that is where we ended up again. And of course, we had our own, um, our own experiments and frankly, very good aquaculture feed. But from a net impact point of view, actually growing the algae specifically for the purpose of carbon sequestration and then not processing it, just solar drying it in such a way that it does mummify and it does go into the ground long term mm -hmm. is the most net carbon negative technology we could make. And, and there is a huge demand for high quality carbon credits. Um, you know, so we can have a this weekend startup landfill that you can send, uh, Carbon Trust or Vera or Puro to come and certify. And then, and then they can, you know, we own the biomass. It's not somewhere in the deep ocean. It's not sort of mysteriously injected somewhere. It's not some, carbon offset of a bike scheme that may or may not have uh, replaced a car, a car mile. Mm -hmm. It's something we physically have in hand. So it's a very high quality carbon credit and, and yeah. it's, you know, very certifiable in that sense. I feel like that leads directly into my next question, which is what is your business model? And I'm assuming that these high quality carbon credits must be related. Yeah, of course. I mean, the business model is to grow algae as affordably as possible on as big a scale as possible. So to stay with that for a second, we are developed, we've developed the technology from a growth mm -hmm. point of view. Now we are spending a lot of effort on the sort of engineering scale up to really truly industrial scale. We've identified about half a million square kilometers of really ideal coastal desert land in places like South Africa, Namibia, Southern Angola, Chile, Peru, Ecuador, um, huge areas in the Mediterranean, Western sort of uh, um, Morocco, places like the Red Sea, Arabian Sea, the Gulf, Australia. And we've identified about a half a million square kilometer of really excellent land. And we want to make it that technology accessible to all those local governments and local environments so that they can then implement this technology on a large scale. So the scale-up engineering is also about us being able to anticipate what the local environmental conditions are. So we're very good when it comes to sort of remote sensing technology and sensor technology in terms of seeing how the algae grow. Um, and, and, and that and that scale-up engineering is very important. And the other bit is we want to make sure that we enable people to, again, do that MRV, that measurement, that recordal, that you know, validation and the verification of the technology and the carbon. And so we're very, very good at tracking carbon in the incoming seawater, how much we pull from the CO, from the air, from the atmosphere how much of that CO2 is absorbed in our pond as we mix our pond. And so um, making that available to, to other companies so they can deliver this worldwide. Because So the um, idea, just, just to break it down a little bit more, so the idea is that your customers directly would be 
governments? Uh, it's actually and then for the moment it's high. It's 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 starting with the tech sector. People like Microsoft, Shopify, Spotify, Stripe. Um, there's a huge demand for these high quality carbon credits. And if you look at the sort of um, so is the product and with respect to the fact that you're the chief scientist, but is the product then the credits or correct. is the product the actual ponds? Okay, so you it's, work with a local government to install one of these ponds, do all of this very precise tracking and then create high quality credits that companies that's want exactly to buy. That's exactly right. That got is it, exactly got it, got right. It. Okay. And that can be, I mean, that can be a local organization. That can be, mm -hmm. a, lo that can be a subsidiary. Uh, our Moroccan company is a subsidiary today. Um, and it can be, it can be government. Absolutely. Gotcha. And then how would you price the credits? So, uh, the, what we are seeing and what we're witnessing is, is that they're the kind of low carbon, the low value carbon credits have increased in value a lot as people have kind of consolidated and the market has, you know, sort of gone from the three to the $18, uh, sort of, uh, space in terms of not always so easy to verify or, or, or stable schemes, but that the price around $100 a ton is the sort of high quality kind of carbon credit that, that the demand for is increasing very quickly. And so that's what we're targeting. We know that we can hit that target. Um, we will not yeah. be able to hit it in our current sort of research site or in the 30 hectare demonstrator site that we're planning on building this coming year. But certainly after that, in the first commercial site, we will be able to hit those kinds of prices. Gotcha. And just for context, it sounds like the algae blooms you'll grow at commercial scale will be able to sequester 30,000 tons, 38,000 tons. No, uh, from actually, the atmosphere I, annually is that are no, those numbers correct? Uh, no, that's I don't know where that number came from. That's an interesting. Oh. One. There's thirty eight thousand gigatons of CO two in the ocean. I'm not right. entirely sure where that number came from, but but no, the first thousand hectare farm that we're planning on building will is is designed to sequester at least a hundred thousand tons of CO two per year. Oh, okay. And uh, we have at a hundred dollars a ton. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're, we, we, uh, have 61 square kilometers of land right now. So 6,100 hectares. So we yeah. even on the existing site, we anticipate we can build multiple modules. But just to give you a sense of scale, um, uh, that sort of, sort of that first farm, um, is is going to produce if we have four or five modules somewhere between five hundred thousand tons of CO two per year. But to really have a big impact, we need to be we need to go global, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the fifty, the the half a million square kilometers that we're looking for, uh, that we've identified in terms of that ideal coastal land that's flat in, in the right ocean environment in politically stable countries can sequester about two gigatons of carbon, two billion tons of CO2 per Amazing. year. Right? Yeah. And so, and so we, we, we are very conscious that that first farm is great, but we need to be able to build a lot of them. And in Morocco alone, there's about two and a half thousand square kilometers of that ideal land. 
Um, I, I'm, 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 we even identified a 3,200 hectare site in Ibiza in the middle of the Mediterranean and sort of a party island. So the point is, is there's land everywhere. And uh, You'll have and a lot so, of volunteers, a lot of reporters yeah, volunteering to come and will. visit that site, I'm sure, <laughs> yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Field but, trips. But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the point is, is so, um, you know, we, we can produce a much more valuable product in quantity than many uh, salt evaporation ponds and other mm -hmm. things that people do in these quite humble environments. I wonder um, how you are thinking about sort of ecosystems as you grow this. It's as I am talking to you at this moment in Oakland, California, we're having like a mass fish die off because of red tide algal blooms. You know, obviously that's not what you're creating, but I'm sure that you have made many arrangements for making sure that these blooms don't escape somehow. No, it's a, it's a really good question. So uh, the first thing is we work with organisms that are not harmful algal blooms. So when I was at Woods Hole Oceanographic and I was studying harmful algal blooms, the whole idea was how to stop them. Um, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, we're not growing those kinds of organisms. On the harmful algal blooms, they are, there are not many species like that. Uh, they're actually quite easy to identify. So it's a familiar territory. But to your point, we do a couple of things that are really important. One is, is we work with local organisms. They're not genetically engineered. They're not modified in any way. They are the way they are in the environment. So even if we were to leak them out, the local fish are happy to have them. Uh, they kind of fit into the environment. They're not doing something unexpected. The second thing is um, we are deacidifying a huge amount of seawater. So we actually help in terms of nat sort of local environmental restoration. So we can grow seagrasses, we can grow mangroves, we can grow corals in our seawater. So our seawater, we do not remove any so-called alkalinity, the stuff that holds the CO2 in the seawater. Mm -hmm. uh, we just remove the CO2. And so it reduces that acidification that everybody hears about and returns to the ocean high oxygen, very clean seawater that is actually able to make the mussel shells, the clam shells, the oyster shells. And so um, we've spent quite a lot of time working in the terms of the local environmental impact assessments and making sure that there are no unintended consequences. Um, one of the things that's really important here is uh, we are very, very good at anticipating the quality of the seawater that's coming into our ponds that we're, that we're actually using, because for us, it's the nutrient source. It's where our, our, you know, sort of the resources that we need come from. And so we've built a so-called finite volume community ocean model. It's a, it's a, it's a way of building very localized, very specific models for your local environment with the Scottish Association of Marine Sciences. But the beauty of that is, is, is it also allows us to, um, to have the discharge tracked and to, and to see where our discharge water is going. And so we're very conscious of the way we interact with the environment. Um, the reason why I mentioned uh, the Red Sea and sort of the Mediterranean is 
we are very conscious of different environments. So where we are in the Atlantic, on the Atlantic coast in Morocco, it's a very nutrient-rich environment. Whereas, for example, places in the Eastern Mediterranean or the Red Sea are very nutrient-depleted environments. And so we have to be very careful to sort of match our production with those local environments. Right. Does that make scaling more difficult? It sounds like you've, you know, you've clearly solved a lot of cost and infrastructure issues, but it sounds like each installation is going to be a very bespoke no, situation so, in some so, ways. So the actual method of how we grow the algae, it's really very simple, actually. Yeah. Take the local algae, we add seawater. When they've used all the nutrients, we add more seawater. And when they get to sort of a certain volume and the pond overflows, we put it into a bigger pond, right? It's yeah. really quite simple operationally. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> Magic, exactly. And then when it, the biggest pond is full, we harvest it and we take the water and put it back in the ocean. Got it. Um, so the, the actual local operation is quite simple. But you are right that the timing of the dilution, how much seawater we add, what the initial cell concentration is, what the local light level is, how fast to run our paddle wheels to create that spring algal bloom feeling in the ponds, right? That is the subtlety and that's the complexity. And so what we have done is, and, and frankly, uh, the UK government has been very helpful. We've had a, a project called AgriSat with Innovate UK. They've given us five and a half million dollar, uh, pounds to, to, to look at the fundamentals of the system. And the reason is, is, is so that we can kind of use those fundamental principles regardless of where we are. So it's truly a platform technology. And the idea is, is it's, it's something that uh, is, is quite transferable. One thing that we are very good at and that everybody in our team has done is we're very good at bioprospecting those local algae. We've mm -hmm. got to find those local organisms first. And they have to be the right size and grow at the right speed and do the right things. And that's one of the skills we have. But the actual uh, dilution, uh, sometimes in the wintertime, for example, where we are now, there are not as many nutrients in the water. We may need to supplement those kinds of details. That's the subtlety in the system. Got it. And then finally, um, what do you need in terms of, you know, carbon markets are still somewhat nascent, largely voluntary. What would you love to see in terms of some certainty around carbon markets? You've raised $25 million. Obviously, uh, you know, VCs are making a bet on these markets existing and continuing to grow. But I wonder what you would love to see from a business perspective to really sort of secure that business model going forward. And not even business model, right? Like that actual driving force behind a lot of investment that will sequester a lot of carbon. The first thing that would really make our life much better is if there was consistency in terms of how things are measured. And if there were a universal framework or one that is really clearly defined, what we find is, is that if we speak with any verification or certification agency, they all have their own quirky sort of approaches with their own kind of experiences. And, and it is really all over the place. And it is hard to believe some things that get certified and, 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 you know, some challenges that others have. So the fact is, is that kind of structure would be really great. Mm -hmm. Second thing would be 
um, governments have been very, they have their nationally determined contributions, they have their plans, um, and they, you know, they're doing many useful things. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong, we need every solution. We need tree planting, we need decarbonization, we need uh, insulation on housing, we need alternative uh, energy sources, for sure. And so all of those things help. But the fact is, is when it comes to things like we are doing, just to give you just to illustrate, and this is not a criticism, but in Morocco, to get our environmental impact assessment, it required us to get approval from 27 different ministries. And certainly as a young startup company, I didn't know you could have 27 ministries in a government. Right. <laughs> um, and so the point is, is it's, it's, it's all for good reason. But the fact is, is that kind of regulatory environment would be, would be super helpful. The yeah. third thing that is really, uh, I think probably all of your guests <laughs> would be wondering about is as if there's a carbon price. Um, mm -hmm. A, a carbon tax, a carbon price, anything that we can orient ourselves would be super helpful. I don't actually mind the voluntary market. Um, I think the voluntary market is adjusting itself quite sensibly. Um, I do think that some of the schemes where people are trying to stimulate innovation are very creative and very useful. But But at the end of the day, everybody's going to buy more of these credits if they can anticipate what the prices are. And so, in that sense, that kind of price regulatory mechanism is something that we still need some help with. Raphael Jovine is founder and chief scientist of Brilliant Planet. You can see what they're working on at brilliantplanet.com. I'm excited to make that field trip to Ibiza. Oh, please. And uh, <laughs> it's great to meet you. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have you visit, actually. I love a gigaton scale conversation. Amazing, Raphael. So cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the show. What a great week, Molly. What a great week. Hopefully you are enjoying a day off. The U.S. and Canada are off for Labor Day. Uh, mm. And don't worry. We got a huge week coming next week. Yeah, I'm going to have my guy, Keith Raboy, on the show uh, doing his quarterly every six month check in. I like You're how love he, it, Molly. he doesn't tell me this in advance. He's just like, you're going to love it, Molly. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it, Molly. <laughs> Got a wait. lot of strong feelings about topics that you love. I love it. Can't <laughs> can't wait. I just cannot wait. Uh, it is going to be a great week. And then one more reminder: we will see you on Tuesday. Tuesday. We are actually taking a day off. See well, you then. Two days off in a week. Wow, what? we did it, Molly. Wah, 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 wah. I mean, Saturday, Monday. Wow, we took two days off. Amazing. Good job, us. <laughs> <laughs>